Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, this morning when I awoke, the sky was overcast. From my deck, I could look south to the restless waves breaking out on Baker Island. I could look west and north and see the long ridge of mountain shaped by glaciers. Around me were woodlands of pine, spruce, birch, and poplar. The brooks were running and wood frogs were quacking in the pool in the quarry. All of what I see, hear, and sense is the land of the Wabanaki. I acknowledge the many ways that non-natives have disrespected their legacy and sovereignty, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to reimagine our relationship and learn from Wabanaki people about the earth based on their long stewardship of this place. This afternoon, we have the deep privilege of hearing from native and non-native people about their experience in The Gatherings, a series of conversations held 30 years ago to try to build understanding and trust across culture and history in the land of the Wabanaki. The Gatherings is the title of a new book published by the University of Toronto Press and written by Shirley Hager, along with other participants given the collective name, and I may mispronounce this, Shirley, but Maubeane. The subtitle of the book is Reimagining Indigenous Settler Relations, and that will be the focus of our conversation. Let me welcome our guests. Shirley Hager is of English, Scottish, and German-Austrian descent, growing up in the segregated southern U.S., She served as the coordinator for the Center for Vision and Policy here in Maine, and under their auspices organized the gatherings, which are the subject of the book and our conversation. Until her retirement, she was an associate extension professor with the University of Maine and one of my dear colleagues. She serves with the Friends Committee on Maine Public Policy and chairs its committee on tribal state relations. Mi'kmaqan is a Mi'kmaq woman of the Fish Clan, resident of Eskenobidich, or Burnt Church Reserve in New Brunswick. Her life work has been devoted to revival of Wabanaki culture. She currently provides support to First Nations students and helps them make connections to elders as carriers of traditional knowledge. She is elder in residence at St. Thomas University in Fredericton and also sits on the executive committee of the Urban Aboriginal Knowledge Network of the University of New Brunswick. Marilyn Kais Roper is of Dutch, Scottish, and English descent. Her education included the study of archaeology, and her research, often cited, found no evidence for warfare among early humans. She lives in northern Maine on traditional Maliseet land, contributing her skills as volunteer administrative assistant of Aid for Kids. She recently retired as secretary of the Southern Aristic Ministerial Association after 14 years. She works with Wabanaki people and feels she has gained so much more than she contributes. 
Welcome to you all. I'm so glad you could be with us this afternoon for our conversation. Perhaps I could ask each of you to, to say a little bit more or add to my introduction. Um, the introduction really came from um, the wonderful book, um, but what would you add? Um, Shirley, could we start with you? What would you like listeners to know um, besides what my introduction gave you? Well, um, I, I live here in uh, Western Maine in Chester, the town of Chesterville, and I moved to Maine in 1983, but um, I grew up in, in North Carolina. And I, as you mentioned, Ron, I grew up during segregation. And I think that experience led me to a lifelong interest in social justice issues. Um, when I moved to Maine, I moved to Portland and I found a Quaker meeting there, the Portland Friends Meeting. And that really got me involved in peace education. And <clears throat> about that time, I met Ellie Haney, who had just founded an organization called the Center for Vision and Policy. And they had um, a, a, a broad vision of creating um, a plan, a strategy for sustainability in the Gulf of Maine bioregion, which um, by the way, corresponds to Wabanaki territory. And they wanted to bring together issues around social justice, environmental justice, economic justice, um, but they had a fairly unique approach in that they wanted to be sure to include indigenous voices, voices of the Wabanaki who had lived here in the bioregion sustainably for so many years. And, but they didn't really, know how to begin to do that. And so um, I was intrigued by that idea. And that got me involved with the center and ultimately led to the gatherings that we talk about in the book. Great. Migamahan, what would you add um, to my introduction? Um, what else would you like listeners to know about you? I don't really have too much more to add. Uh, just that uh, uh, I've now have four grandchildren instead of three, and uh, I'm still uh, at Stu St. Thomas University, and uh, with Turtle Island Institute, um, doing uh, research on rematriation, and I've been uh, recently been appointed uh, with our traditional tribal system as a woman chief, which is. Uh, uh, in our in our Mi'kmaq district, uh, traditional government, which is rare, and uh, uh, so I, I guess that's about all. And, and it, and to the conversation. Sure, and and it said that you were have always been interested in kind of um, taking care of and nurturing Wabanaki culture. How, how did that start with you? Was that growing up when when that became important to you? Well, you know that uh, uh, how our language and culture and spiritual practices are very important because they were outlawed in our, uh, you know, uh, in the generations to come. While you know, under colonization, we weren't allowed to practice or speak, practice our spirituality or speak our language, which is why it's so central to. Uh, where where we're at in our life and how that's in the forefront of everything that we do and it's about reclaiming. Mm. So, 
Thank you. Thank you. Marilyn, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What, what brought you into this work? Well, um, I'm first explain that I'm a Quaker, but I am not part of the main Quakers because we live in Holton, Maine, uh, on Maliseet territorial uh, ground. The Holton Band of Maliseets is here. And uh, because it's so close to New Brunswick and Fredericton, uh, we are part of New Brunswick Monthly Meeting and have been over 35 years. We moved from the Philadelphia area because we were tired of praying for peace and paying for war. So we moved so that we could live under the taxable level and are very happy uh, that we are here. And um, I had very little contact um, with indigenous people, except I worked uh, in a Quaker work camp uh, right before college um, on a Cherokee Indian reservation for a month, uh, picking beans with other ladies and things like that. But uh, I was pretty dumb and really didn't know much about indigenous people. And uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here in an area where the traditional indigenous people were pretty much hunters and gatherers. And in my archeology, span <laughs> um, I found that uh, Hunters and gatherers in general, if, if left to their own devices and not, not messed up by other, other people coming in, such as white people, uh, were uh, very peaceful mm. and very community-oriented. And so it's a great pleasure to live where we do now and to uh, get, having gotten to know uh, and hope I'll get to know more uh, in did Wabnaki people of this land. Great, thank you. Um, what led each of you to um, um, get involved in the gatherings? Um, Shirley, you said that it was uh, part of the Center for Vision and Policy, but what led you personally to get involved in the in the gatherings? And um, well, as I said, um, when I learned that the Center for Vision and Policy was interested in reaching out to Wabanaki people, um, and I talk about this in the book, you know, I had always had a very romantic notion. Uh, as many of us do growing up, about Native people. And, um, you know, I tell the story in the book that, um, you know, when I watched the Westerns when I was a kid, I always sided with the Indians. You know, I wanted I wanted to live the way they lived, you know, in their communities. And, and you know, it was sort of a lifelong interest in learning more about them, but I'd never had an opportunity and so when, um, when I met Ellie and she talked about wanting to reach out to Wabanaki people to be involved in this effort, um, I had an opportunity in my, in my purse because I was planning to go to a yearly gathering of Quakers and um, Gisatanamuk, who is Mikamahan's partner, um, was actually going to speak there on native spirituality. And so I said to Ellie, well, I'm going to this event and I'll 
I'll talk to this person whose name I couldn't pronounce and um, see if he has any advice for us. And Ellie had been given a few contacts um, in New Brunswick, the native, um, the New Brunswick Native Women's Council, as it was called then, um, she had been given a few names. And so she was trying to make connections there. But I, um, it was a, a lifelong interest without much education um, that, that sort of led me into this, into this effort. Mm. Megha Mahan, what was your first knowledge of the gatherings and, and, and how did you become involved? Why did you become involved? Um, well, probably because of my association with Kisutanamuk, uh, you know, and uh, uh, meeting Shirley in Massachusetts at uh, uh, one of the presentations. I'm not sure if it was the same one that Shirley just talked about. Um, so uh, I know that, uh, you know, there was work going on and then occasionally I would uh, leave my community with our small children and travel uh, to the gatherings with Kisutanamuk. But I, I, because of my uh, isolation and, you know, how, um, um, how the powers that be has always misrepresented our people. I was also operating on that uh, experience. So I did not really uh, want to uh, participate in the very beginning, but uh, being on the outskirts and uh, caring for my children, you know, I began to see, and I was hearing the circle from the uh, uh just hanging around on the outer, outer circle. And and um, I was very moved by uh, the conversations and um, witnessing uh, real, um, the realness of um, non-Native participants, uh, you know, being present and listening uh, very, you know, respectfully with, indig- with to the Indigenous relations that was in the circle. And so I observed that for a while and uh, still not uh, fully committed. But at the time, I was not too fluent in English as well. So I didn't feel I could contribute too much. Um, But uh, it was uh, over the years of uh, witnessing that, that uh, uh, I was able to build up much more courage and confidence to uh, uh, bring my voice in the circle. Mm. Um, Shirley, perhaps um, just a, a note f- um, uh, first about um, what what form the gatherings took that you describe in the book. Um, uh, and then I'd like you to, to, to introduce someone who couldn't be here today, um, Wayne Newell. Um, yeah. And uh, so I'll, I'll, but let's, what form did the gatherings take? So people have a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that, um, you know, something like this doesn't happen quickly. And so I mentioned meeting Gisotanamuk and Megamahan as well at this um, Quaker gathering. And um, Gisotanamuk was, I think he was intrigued by this idea that um, the the organization that the Center for Vision and Policy had. Um, but he probably sensed how <laughs> how little we knew. And so what actually happened was there was about a year of correspondence 
um, between myself and Gisitana Mook that was basically him educating me on what some of the issues were. And I was letting him know what we were finding out from other people. And um, after after about a year, a year of this, the idea emerged of having a gathering, but it was it was not how it um, ended up. In the beginning, we just sort of envisioned what you might call an educational forum. And we identified four or five Wabanaki speakers who would come and sort of educate us white people on um, their history and their current issues. And so we did this um, twice um, over a two-year period. The first one was pretty successful, and we did it again the second time, where we would have speakers, and they would come, and, you know, it was question and answer, but we were there over a long weekend, so we would eat together, and we had it, you know, we stayed at the Hersey Retreat in Stockton Springs, and it was fairly formal, and at the end of the second gathering, because I had sort of become the coordinator of this event, several Wabanaki people came to me and they basically said, you know, we think this has promise, but um, we'd like to make a suggestion. <laughs> we, we would like to offer to do this in a more traditional way that we're more familiar with and more comfortable with. And, um, you know, would you be interested in doing that? And um, I immediately said, well, yes. Um, and, you know, we talked about it and we, we just said, we would absolutely love that. And they said, um, well, we would like to meet in a more traditional way, in a circle um, with perhaps a talking stick and um, that we would take care of that. You know, we would like to have a ceremony that would help us to, to in our deliberations. We'll take care of that and you do what you're good at, which is, you know, getting people here and organizing this. And we'll take care of the way in which we meet, the structure in which we meet. And we, of course, agreed to that. And that was when everything changed because um, people also said, we want to do this more often. We're talking about uh, four-day weekends where people would come, we would find, um, we stopped, you know, having it at a retreat center and um, just found people's homes and farms where we could, we could all meet. This would be like 25, 30 people and so on. So uh, we began to meet just over long weekends in a traditional council meeting that was led by the Wabanaki. Mm. So, as I said, one of the people who couldn't be here today is Wayne Newell. Um, it was an early, early participant. And um, could you uh, read a passage from the book that kind of speaks to his um, connection to the gatherings? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, this is how he describes his involvement. I'm not exactly sure how I heard about the gatherings. It may have been through friends and mutual acquaintances. But once I started participating, it became evident to me what the relationship was becoming. It's as if one day the lights went on. I woke up in the middle of the process and thought, wow, this is worth my time. It's worth investing myself. I liked the people and I liked that if nothing else, we were trying to clear the air. Each of us brings our personal history to any conversation. 
Native people bring a particular history in terms of what happened to us in the past and how things came to be as they are now. My experience prior to the gatherings had been that whenever we tried to raise some of these issues, non-natives were largely unwilling to deal with them. Instead, they would talk about the superficial stuff. We'd hear, I like you people, or I like your costumes, those sorts of things. Non-natives were fascinated with our outerwear, but nobody wanted to talk about what was inside of us. Mm -hmm. That's great. And we should say um, Wayne is a Passamaquoddy, um, and he has really worked most of his life to revive the Passamaquoddy language and to get that um, um, down. And I'm just delighted that I was able to go to the Abbey Museum and, and get a copy of his um, the book that he's just edited, Stories Our Grandmothers Told Us. So um, if you're listening, get a, get a, pick that book up somewhere and, and find out what grandmothers told um, Passamaquoddy people, but it's also in English as well. So um, Wayne, sorry you couldn't be with us today, but but uh, glad that your voice was here. Marilyn um, uh, Kais Roper, how did you first learn about the, the gatherings and what was your connection um, to these uh, periodic um, meetings or gatherings? Well, I wish I could remember uh, how I got connected. Uh, my husband was with me at these gatherings mostly, and he can't remember either. And part of the confusion is because in New Brunswick Monthly Meeting, the Quakers also were having um, uh, dialogues with indigenous people, uh, Wabnakis uh, in New Brunswick. And uh, so I wish I could be more definite, but once we did go to the first one, believe me, we tried never to miss another. <laughs> mm, mm. So what challenges did you have to overcome, Shirley? Um, and each of you may have, may reflect on that, but um, you mentioned the more formal, moving from the more formal um, to um, traditional kind of circles, um, a talking stick. Um, there was a fire um, um, that was kept. Um, uh, Gisentamalik um, was, was the fire keeper in many, many cases, I understand. What were the challenges that you had to overcome to, to keep this, this all going? Well, I think um, one of the challenges was just um, our lack of knowledge of each other. You know, the awkwardness, the um, and I, I will also say that <clears throat> what we were doing was not in direct relation to the Settlement Act being signed in Maine, but it was not that long after. Um, we started meeting in 1987. The Settlement Act had been signed in 1980. It had been a very contentious period in Maine's history. A lot of... Um, mistrust and suspicion on both sides. And um, so I think that was still in the air to a certain extent. And there was also about that time, there was a lot of appropriation of indigenous um, traditions and customs. And we were just um, so concerned and so conscious of that uh, of people being attracted to this because uh, they just wanted to have an experience of a native ceremony, for example. And so we spent huge amounts of time um, after that for those first couple of meetings, when we began to gather, 
um, educating any new new non-native people who wanted to come. I, you know, I spent myself hours on the phone because people would often say, tell tell people if they wanted to come to call me, and that, so it was like an orientation that we would do with people that um, we just um, wanted them to make sure that this was we were meeting to understand what the issues were, to understand one another better. And anything that they experienced in terms of ceremony was not to be um, taken or um, uh, practiced for profit or, um, you know, just to be extremely careful that it was, it was like, um, I said to people, you're being, it's like being invited to someone else's church. You wouldn't go there um, assuming to be converted or wanting to take something away and pretend that you could then practice what you had seen. Mega Mahan, you mentioned your own hesitance. You stayed on the outside of the circle for a while, but then began to get closer in and felt more confident. Um, Was there anything else that you remembered about some of the the evolution of the gatherings that um, made sense to you? I think for me, after uh, witnessing uh, that uh, 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 that uh, authenticity and uh, uh, the energy was much more different, something that I wasn't used to. Uh, and then uh, we had hosted, uh, this autonomous had asked if we could host one of the gatherings at our home. And so... Uh, uh, I that uh, was really nice. Uh, we had uh, they hosted, I think, a couple of gatherings at, at our area in our community, and so uh, I was in the comfort of my own home, and uh, many of our uh, members in the community came just to have come and see the white folks uh, who's come <laughs> to our community, to you know, and so uh, it was. Uh, um, we were also, uh, you know, interested and then that we wanted to experience something different. So uh, having that uh, long weekend together and, you know, cooking together and, and so on. And uh, I thought uh, for me, it was just uh, uh, all, all the, um, the uh the feeling of uh, building friendship was very much present. So, yeah. And I think that's what uh, began to really uh, shift, shift things for me to, you know, and. Uh, so um, we're, we're, the, the hour is going past very fast. Um, I just want listeners to know that we're talking about um, reimagining indigenous settler relations through the lens of a new book called The Gatherings. And uh, with us, we have Megamahan, just heard from, um, resident of Eskenobadich, um, Burnt Church Reserve in New Brunswick, um, Marilyn Kais Roper from Northern Maine, um, and then Shirley Hager, who kind of coordinated the writing of the book. Um, she's a retired extension professor with the University of Maine. Um, 
Shirley, what led to the, the, the writing of the book and, and tell a little bit about the process because it wasn't straightforward. It wasn't you sitting down and writing a book. This was a really engaged process to make sure that every voice was authentic. Talk a little bit about that and I'll get some reactions from Marilyn and Migamahan as well. I think Marilyn and Migamahan are laughing because um, uh, yes, it was an involved process, um, but a really important one. Um, well, you know, years went by and um, because of the experience we'd had in the gatherings, many of us stayed in touch. Um, you know, some of us, you know, became part of each other's lives in many ways. And um, so the gatherings ended in 1993, but it was in, um, I had had this vision for years that someone should write a book about our experience and what we learned, but it should not be me. I, you know, it just seemed like such a huge thing. And, and um, one of our um, members of the group uh, who had participated, participated for years um, is actually a New Zealander named Francis Hancock. And, but Francis had gone back to New Zealand. Francis is a writer. She works with Maori populations in New Zealand. Um, and she was visiting me in 2008. And um, we started talking about somebody should write a book. And she said, oh, that's, that's great. I'll come back and I'll stay for a couple of weeks and I'll interview people and I'll, I'll, we'll do it. And so that was great, except that um, we, time went by and um, when we all planned to get together to talk about this, um, suddenly Francis couldn't travel. She had a series of eye operations, couldn't fly for maybe a year. And so people said, well, we're not stopping now. And so um, it was agreed that I would take this on. And um, it was has really been an amazing process uh, but one of the things that we agreed upon in the beginning is that this would not be the sort of project where, <clears throat> you know, so many people um, come into Native communities and gather information and go off and write a book or get a degree because they wrote something. And we didn't want <clears throat> that at all. It had to be a process that involved all of us at every stage. And so... We went through uh, writing drafts and and um, re rewrites, and everyone had full authority over their words. Um, so we would go back and forth. You know, how do, is this what you meant to say? Um, and even when the book was completed, like the first draft, people needed to sign off on the book as a whole and how they were represented. Um, so I, one of the things I'm most pleased with is I think that when we get to this stage, um, I hope uh, that everyone feels that it's our book, you know, it's our book. Mm. And um, that really was uh, evident in how we decided to portray the names on the book mm. as well. Mm. It was a true partnership. And I, I hope everyone feels that way. Sure. Megahan, what do you remember about the, the writing process or the back and forth? What was that like for you? Mm, well, I, I did uh, travel with Shirley. You know, we went and recorded um, uh, 
friends on the Wabanaki communities. And so that that was uh, really nice and reconnecting. Uh, in re-listening to uh, interviews, uh, particularly mine, I just sympathized with Shirley so much. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my gosh, uh, the poor woman has to keep listening to this over and over to translate uh, you know, um, but the other thing I wanted to share, as Shirley had when you asked, and, or Shirley was sharing about um, uh, how this came to be, and uh, we had all, um, we were, all went to uh, the Penops, uh, Passamaquoddy uh, Dictionary Launch at University of Maine, and so we all met there, and so we uh, we were. It was kind of a little a reunion for us as well, and uh, we were all inspired. You know, Wayne, Wayne with Wayne with the language with Passamaquoddy language. You know, and um, uh, so and we were reflecting back about uh, our our times together, and so we were. Uh, Wayne and I um, particularly was sharing about wouldn't it be nice if we could uh, write our uh, times together to our gatherings and um, so no one really said anything and then we you know we kept at it and we said well you know this would be uh, voice, uh, a gift to the future to uh, I was looking at it and Wayne was looking at it from our uh, from our um, uh, Wabanaki um, experience and we were feeling like you know there's got to be a story out there you know since the arrival of the uh, the settlers on our shores you know we need to capture some stories to bring forth to the future and so um, uh, I'm trying to remember if uh, Francis was there but anyway we were all looking at Shirley <laughs> <laughs> to uh, hold hold this basket for us, you know, and uh, mo um, move forward with it. And we said that we'll work closely with you and, you know, so on. So uh, that was also feeding. So we, we were probably all on the same page about creating something. And so I, I still... So appreciative of uh, Shirley taking this on, and I know originally it, the, the the weight was put on um, Francis and our friend in New Zealand, and uh, so. But in the end, Shirley uh, took on took it on for us. So much gratitude. So um, you and and Wayne talked about making a gift to the future, and the subtitle of the book is Reimagining Indigenous Settler relations. Um, so what what do you all want um, people who read the book to kind of take away? What is it that, that's the, the message for the future? Um, how could we imagine a different kind of relationship between uh, settlers and indigenous people? I would say one of the things that I just chuckled over um, is that there's a reference in the book to um, settlers being the house guests from hell. And I love that image because we've all had house guests that um, we would just as soon um, maybe they'd move on. But in the case of, of uh, European settlers, they didn't move on. Um, so you referred to that period of time, the house guests from hell. How could we imagine a different kind of relationship between indigenous people and settlers? Who would like to, to 
tackle that. Uh, Marilyn, go ahead, please. Yes, uh, I uh, want to read you a couple of sentences from the book uh, from Gisatanamuk's uh, contribution. Uh, I think that we would not have been the house guests from hell had we had the same concept of the land. And I would like to read these sentences to you. One of the fundamental differences in philosophies between white and indigenous cultures is that one culture says the land belongs to them and the other culture talks about belonging to the land. And I, this is something that I learned. I believe the, uh, the indigenous people uh, involved uh, in the gatherings are in some ways are superstars. <laughs> and they, uh, I think they took the time with us because we would listen. I was very, very ignorant, very uh, arrogant at the beginning because I simply did not know. And mm. I didn't even know enough to know that I didn't know mm. anything. Mm. And I learned that uh, we, we had at one time um, a place, a uh, summer place uh, in New Brunswick. And I was talking about my land, our land, my husband and my so-and-so. Oh, no, no, no. The land belongs to the creator. And not only that, it is the Wabnakis in this area who were given by the creator the uh, task of taking care of it. This has been since time immemorial, now and in the future. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important uh, for some of us white people to know that the some of the best ecological things we can do for climate change and for other things is to follow the lead of indigenous people because they, it, well, first of all, in our area, it's their job and, um, and they know the best how to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so another person involved, Alma Brooks, uh, in the, the gatherings here uh, in uh, New Brunswick uh, against fracking and whatever, uh, a leader of, of many indigenous people and many, many, many non-indigenous people who followed her. And this made it so more effective. Mm -hmm. So we learned a lot, and I think that was the goal, frankly, of the gatherings to me, not just to become friends, which we have, and we pretty much all love each other, but um, for, for me, for white people, to learn a little bit by listening. Right. So that's 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 a, a different kind of relationship than, um, <laughs> than what emerged um, with white settlement. There wasn't a lot of listening going on, a lot of listening going on. Um, and there was, it seems to me that um, uh, uh, what you've just des described, um, Marilyn, and what others uh, come through in the book is kind of a humility, a humbleness about ne needing to learn from um, Native people their story. That's an important change in relationship, that willingness to learn. Megamahan, what, again, in thinking about this uh, gift to the future, 
What, 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 say more about that. What, what do you want that gift to be? If readers um, pick up this book, The Gatherings, and, and uh, take it to heart, um, what changes as a result of them reading this book, do you suppose? Well, I'm, I was, uh, of course, I'm coming from an Indigenous uh, perspective. And so I wanted uh, my children and the Indigenous youth uh, to have a reference to draw from, you know, because we have not experienced, uh, we talk about reconciliation, but we don't have a reference. And so uh, that, uh, that it's possible uh, to to build relations uh, with um, uh, white settlers and and have um, meaningful uh, relationships and as Marilyn described you know that we all come to that space of a uh, uh, circle and um, and work together uh, towards a uh, a mutual responsibility in caring for life on our sacred mother. And so uh, the, the, the people that was part of the book and the journey uh, here is, uh, uh, we'll get to find out that uh, we're not uh, much different, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and that's what um, I've always felt that, uh, you know, the, uh, the system uh, has misrepresented us uh, in particularly my ancestors, you know, and um, recognizing that that misrepresentation has instilled fear, you know, in the settlers who are here. And um, and in the end, uh, I, you know, it's the land that has brought us all back together and that that's really ultimately what we need to be focusing on is replenishing and working with the land for the future. I didn't think like this at that time. I was more thinking about, you know, I, uh, I was more thinking about uh, an indigenous and white relations because, uh, you know, that's, uh, it, uh, it's that, uh, uh, system that's uh, influ- very influential to our to the indigenous uh, future generations or the youth, and so the awakening of the the white people and understanding the importance of uh, indigenous uh, way of life or at least connecting to the land and being responsible was uh, something really important for our young people, indigenous people to uh, get. And I think we're coming to that. Mm-hmm. So what, what I hear you suggest is that, um, yes, we want a, a relationship with, uh, among Native and non-Native, but we also want a, an authentic relationship to the land. And, and if we have that, then we might get into a better relationship among Native and non-Native. So there's that connection to the earth that sustains us um, that we all need to recognize. And certainly that's the other other piece of of a culture that um, looked at land as something to take, um, something to use for economic benefit versus um, something that sustains life. Um, there's a real difference there. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, Shirley, what would you add? What would you add? Well, I, I was just going to follow that up 
to say that, you know, in terms of one thing I hope people take away from the book is that um, we're all in this together, you know, and there are lots of, um, you know, I think a lot of non-Native people are waking up and wanting to do something about, um, you know, our tragic past that we have had with um, the people of this land. Um, but it's not about good people doing for or helping Native people. It's about realizing that we are in this together and that what is good for one is good for the other. And um, so, you know, I've, I think we've come to see these issues as belonging to all of us. And just as you said, um, our common purpose is caring for the land, which which nurtures nurtures us all. And the Wabanaki are our neighbors. Mm. And when our neighbors do well, we do well. And I'm just led to, um, because it's so current, if I may, you know, the issues that we're facing here in Maine around the Wabanaki trying to get uh, the Settlement Act amended that has kept them back for, so, for 40 years since it was signed in 1980. And they keep making the argument, which is all across the country, when indigenous communities do well, the communities around them do well. And so that um, it's just another way of looking at how we um, can all benefit by coming together. Mm. Um, Megabahan, you must, as as you uh, grew up and you um, kind of saw a relationship to land, um, you must have looked at white people and said, "How did they break that connection?" I mean, you know, what 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 uh, uh, made them um, break the connection with the land? So how do we how do we get back? How do we get back to a right relationship? With our land and with each other, um, are there are there particular um, pointers um, that you want your children to, to and grandchildren to to kind of pick up or, or around their relationship to the land? Uh, well, I I think it uh, when I reflect back about uh, our time coming together, um, I was pretty naive too about things and. Um, uh, um, but the but the thing that I know I I knew uh, was that we knew so much about uh, the white settlers. Uh, we go to the school, you know. We the government is, uh, you know, our, our, all our uh, relationship uh, with the white settlers was about what's all the the dominant um, uh, reality of what been enforced on us and they didn't really know anything about us and um, the, the amount of uh, energy that was put out uh, to discredit us and you know and so um, I was I was not open you know at the time when we began and I had um, I'd like to say stereotypes like how we would be looked at as indigenous people from non-indigenous like such stereotyping uh but you know um uh so i was coming in from uh in the beginning uh uh with this uh experience and understanding uh but now where i'm at uh 
today is uh, uh, how uh, how important it is for every one of us to really understand our um, ancestry and about uh, because if we all of us if we all because where that's where we still draw from is our from our ancient understanding of who we are uh the philosophy and our belief system you know our creation stories if every one of us uh, did that we'd all find ourselves in the same space mm. after all all our ancestors original teachers were uh, from the same ones that are here, uh, which mm -hmm. is the animal world and the uh, mother nature and our sacred mother. So uh, it's coming to uh, digging deep, you know, and uh, uh, understanding uh, our roots and coming forward. And that's what I'm learning now from the young people on uh, on campus and here in my communities. Um, so uh, all of us have responsibility. So when we say reconnecting to the land, you know, all our, all our stories of our ancestors was about connection to the land. And I know for the new white settlers, they have to dig further <laughs> because we've all been colonized, you know, and the colonization has uh, his its whole intent was to disconnect us from our spiritual connection and the ancient languages were definitely sh have shifted. And now we're speaking a, a language from an industrial industrialized realm, you know, and so we've commodifying everything like yeah. you know so i think in the end uh this is this is what we are going to find we're all going to be coming to that circle of uh, that that same space mm, thank you thank you shirley would you like to add something there if if we have time i have i have a beautiful passage from the book that uh one of our members joanne wrote about this issue Okay, here's what she said. What finally made the biggest difference in how I view myself and my place in the world was going to Ireland, which is her ancestral home. My decision to go began in a conversation with Gisitanamuk. I remember saying to him that I didn't feel I had my own ground to stand on. He said, well, I think if I were you, I'd go to Ireland and walk the land. That was 25, more than 25 years ago, but I held on to that idea. And I won't, I won't read the whole quote, but she ends by saying, now having had that experience in Ireland, which was profound for me, even though I'm back on Cape Cod, I feel that I'm grounded because I'm connected somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that desire for connection, for groundedness, is what connects us <laughs> as people. Um, and if we kind of recognize that basic human need, we're gonna find a right relationship um, to, to one another. So, so important. Um, so it's it's been 30 years since the gatherings. Um, you've become um, closer friends and, and colleagues. Um, and it seems like more now than ever, 
we need the gatherings. We need um, people to come together. Um, any advice for people who um, might like to say, I'd like to reach out, whether I'm a native person wanting to reach out to um, uh, non-native or vice versa, how, how might we connect um, authentically um, going forward? Any thoughts about how we do that? Well, one of the reasons we wrote the book is because we know that not everybody has that opportunity. Um, indigenous people often live in isolated communities because that's the land that they were, quote, given. Um, there aren't that many. We, we don't we, we never intended to write the book where we would feel that, you know, people would want to beat beat a path to the door of a native person just because they, you know, wanted to meet them. Um, so in part, we wrote the book because we had had a window into each other's lives and we wanted to give people the experience that way. But I also want to share a couple of resources. Um, Maine Wabanaki Reach, which has changed their name recently to Wabanaki Reach, um, which you can um, find online at mainwabanakireach.org is uh, an incredible resource for educate, education for non-Native peoples in Maine. Um, so checking out their, their events and workshops. And then very recently, the Wabanaki Alliance is a formation of the tribal leadership in Maine. And they were formed specifically to help get this legislation passed that I mentioned earlier to amend the Settlement Act. Um, but when you connect with them, and that would be um, WabanakiAlliance.com, um, then you know that what your the information you're getting has, has the backing of all of the tribes in Maine, at least the tribal leadership. So it's a wonderful place to begin to educate yourself, to find out how you can get involved. And again, if we're all in this together, it's when we work on something together that we feel is important. We naturally meet each other. And that's what Migamahan says in the books. We need natural forums where we can come together and get to know one another as people. And one of the ways that we get ready for those natural encounters is to do our own education. And yeah. so you're pointing out a couple of sources, and I would just point to our wonderful WERU colleagues, uh, Donna Loring, um, who uh, produces Wabanaki Windows here on WERU, and uh, Maria Gerard and Esther Ann, who produce Donland Signals. So that's another place that people can do their own kind of teaching and education. Um, Marilyn, quickly, yes, go ahead. Yes, uh, I suggest that people look in the paper or go on the websites of the various uh, indigenous communities uh, in Maine and New Brunswick, uh, the uh, Maliseet, Penobscot, and Passamaquoddy, and, and Mi'kmaq, it's called in Maine Mi'kmaq, but I know it is Mi'kmaq uh, is the correct pronunciation in New Brunswick. There are what are called Indian days every year. And if you show up or you can you find out that on the websites uh, of these uh, various uh, Wabanaki communities, go to one of the Indian days and there you uh, will see and participate 
uh, with uh, Wabnaki people, and because you're invited. Right. Great. Well, um, I very briefly, what gives you hope looking ahead? What, um, Megha Mahan, what gives you hope um, as you look ahead to reimagining um, indigenous, indigenous settler relations? Thank you. Shirley, what, what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope is this growing interest that I see all around me um, uh, among uh, church denominations, among schools in re-examining their, their curricula, um, shifts in the legislature, and just the general public wanting to know more. Um, I just sense a, I sense a tipping point that we're that we're in right now. Good. And Marilyn, briefly, what gives you hope? Well, I know that more and more people are reading uh, books like Braiding Sweetgrass uh, and uh, others that uh, really also help to give a uh, a view of the wonderful uh, indigenous culture of Turtle Island. Great. And we don't want to forget the gatherings, which is the topic. No, of, we don't uh, want to forget that either. So <laughs> find that on, on, a, on, on a website and, and uh, order it. Um, it'll come to a bookstore near you as well. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email news at weru.org and tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant, four to five on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Koronak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again so much to our guests, um, Shirley Hager, Megamahan, and Marilyn Kais Roper, all who have been participating in the writing of the Gatherings, Reimagining Indigenous Settler Relations, a new book published by the University of Toronto Press. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Annie Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.